Thanks to all who continue to listen. Now, episode 30 of season 2, The War on Drugs. Some of y'all might have thought that I have forgotten to update some of my miracles that had happened this last year. And I have many more to tell, but I thought the the next episode should be about the war on drugs. I actually was listening uh, to, I I listened to a crime podcast, actually. There was a nurse, Jessica, who was a circulator in the OR, and she had said, you should listen to Crime Junkies podcast. And that's sort of when I got hooked on podcast. And that was even before Dr. Death podcast by Wonderly. And I sort of like a lot of the Wonderly podcast. And thus, I was listening to one of my crime podcasts and they actually were discussing about the fentanyl epidemic. And I thought I have a unique perspective. A lot of people don't um, see being a physician, especially a spine physician, and especially seeing a lot of the intracranial hemorrhages from drugs. And I thought I would give a couple of my two cents and my thoughts about what's currently going on in America. Um, you know, I've, I've talked about how I tend to like surf the, my smart news. And I actually saw that, um, the average, the life expectancy average in America has actually gone down. And part of it has been this war on drugs and a lot of deaths, um, from overdoses. And so let me first start off that, Prescription narcotics are regional, and and it varies by the area and the country what people are accustomed to. And let me explain. So when I was in medical school at UT Southwestern, if you were going to prescribe Percocet or an oxycodone, And a lot of people don't realize oxycodone is one-to-one hydrocodone. So in Texas, or at least in the area that I'm, and I'll explain why Texas is the way it is. Um, When I was in med school, you did not need a special triplicate pad if you wrote a prescription for either Tylenol 3, which is actually Tylenol with codeine, or Lortab, which is another name for hydrocodone. And hydrocodone is different than codeine, but it's a combination with hydrocodone and Tylenol. Now, the big thing is that codeine and hydrocodone always come in combination with Tylenol. And basically, to prevent liver failure, back when I started medical school and early in training, they stated that you couldn't have more than 4,000 milligrams of acetaminophen or Tylenol a day or it could cause liver toxicity. That has subsequently decreased to 3,000 milligrams. And so basically, Tylenol, there's actually a Tylenol 2, which is 15 milligrams of codeine. And I actually prescribed that to a patient, not realizing that when I first uh, started. But there's there's a, because I remember her saying Tylenol 3 is, way too much for me. And I said, well, just cut it in half. And she said, I really don't like that. So I looked and there was a Tylenol 2, but she's the only person I ever remember prescribing it. Tylenol 3 is 30 milli, uh, uh, like uh, 30 mil equivalent to 300 milligrams 
of Tylenol. And so basically, rule of thumb, if that's the case, you can give someone technically nine tablets of Tylenol three a day before you can develop liver toxicity. Now, Tylenol-4 is actually 60 milliequivalents of codeine to 300 milligrams of Tylenol. So let's say someone is requiring 12 tablets of Tylenol-3. Well, that's in that liver toxicity. So that's when you would go and you would say, I'm going to give them six of Tylenol-4. So they're not giving too much Tylenol. Um, for their liver. And the same as having like too much Motrin, Aleve, or NSAIDs, those have damage to the kidneys and actually have caused kidney uh, damage or kidney failure too. So you don't want too much of one or the other. Um, hydrocodone is similar. So hydrocodone actually has a 5 to 325 usually. Now there's some others, but what pharmacy carries are 325s or 7.5 to 3.25, and that's commonly known on the streets, at least in Texas, as Lortab. The Lortab is like a 7.5 to 3.25, but there's also a 10 to 3.25. And so as a physician, and I have seen patients, because I'll check their labs, um, especially if they're on a, a, if they're taking more than six equivalent uh pain pills with, you know, Tylenol or 1,500 milligrams to 2,000 milligrams or taking a lot of Tylenol, their liver enzymes will bump. And so I tend to give the maximum amount of narcotics with the Tylenol to prevent that from happening. Um, that being said, Percocet is an oxycodone. And Percocet is either in a 5 milligrams to 325 or a 10 to 325, just like the hydrocodone. And five of Percocet is equivalent to five of hydrocodone. It's like one-to-one. However, I think there's a connotation that oxycodone is a harder drug or a harder narcotic than a hydrocodone, at least in Texas. Now, when I was in Texas in med school, you did not need, the residents didn't need a special triple kit pad to prescribe either Tylenol 3 or 4 with codeine or hydrocodone or the Lortab. So a lot of patients in Texas got used to getting Tylenol 3, 4, or hydrocodone after surgery, after traumas, um, because that was the easiest thing to do. When I actually went to residency in Virginia... I was so surprised, like, first week on the job, they said, okay, they need to prescribe. And I remember there was a pain management involved, and I think this was a cancer patient, so they had been on Dilaudid. And Dilaudid is even, uh, it's very rare for someone to get Dilaudid pills. So you then have, how do I say this? After the oxycodone, then you start getting into the morphine. And morphine is more of an IV medication. So IV medication is a medicine that we actually inject um, into the veins versus a pill. Now, there are morphine pills. There's immediate release and sustained release. Let me explain. So this is sort of getting complicated. Pills that you swallow, 
tend to take 30 minutes to 60 minutes to start working for pain. IV pushes take anywhere between five to 15 minutes to work, but they only last one to two hours. The pain pills tend to last four to six hours. Now, a lot of patients and a lot of drug, or not drug companies, but uh, insurance companies, they'll only cover, so what are long-acting pain medicines? So they're pain medicines that you take and you don't get that immediate effect, but they are time release. So they last about 12 hours. And you have that in oxycodone or oxycontin, or it's a sustained release form. And usually that's 10 milligrams and people, they're in 10, milli, 10 milligram equivalents. And usually you take them twice a day. Then you have similar so morphine, and this is where they're not one-to-one, um, morphine tends to go in five or like five milligram in- increments. So a sustained release is usually 15 milligrams or 30 milligrams. So it's really 15 milligram in- increments. And insurance companies will not... They're, so what are the options? Usually they'll pay for only morphine, long release. And that is usually for cancer patients or chronic pain patients, or there's different things besides cancer pain and chronic pain. But those medicines are time release, so they last instead of four to six hours over 12 hours. You don't have that in the hydrocodone or the Tylenol 3 or fork uh, form, but you have that in morphine and oxycodone form. Dilaudid is a little bit more potent form of morphine. And when you look at the families, Dilaudid or hydromorphone is actually um, more in the fentanyl classification of the narcotics. Dilaudid usually causes less itchiness and uh, it's a little bit more potent and patients, like they don't tolerate morphine if they're saying the pain's not working and you need an IV push form so that immediate release, we go to Dilaudid. Now, Dilaudid tablets, usually those are uh, not common to be prescribed unless a pain management service has prescribed them. And this is where I was remembering when I was an intern in Virginia, there was a patient and this was a patient who had had cancer in their spine and had a fracture from that cancer eating up the bone, had to have surgery, had really severe pain, had been on placed on and I'll explain in a second, a fentanyl patch. And I haven't even gotten to that. I'll, I'll get to that. But, and also dilaudid pain pills. And the nurse practitioner said, yeah, right for it. And I was like, I don't understand. I don't have a triple kit. And she said, you don't need a triple kit in Virginia. And this, this, is, this is where pain medicine is totally regional. So in Virginia, I could write for any of the narcotics. Tylenol-3, Tylenol-4, hydrocodone, Percocet, Dilaudid, fentanyl patches. And so I realized in Virginia, 
since there wasn't everybody in Virginia went more 70, 80% Percocet or oxycodone worked better. 10 or 20% would request hydrocodone. Um, and this was totally regional. Also, and that gets me to fentanyl. And so I decided to talk about this podcast because everybody says, oh, these fentanyl overdoses. And I don't think the public realizes we don't have pills for fentanyl. We do not give pills in medicine for fentanyl. So you might be thinking, well, if y'all don't prescribe pills for fentanyl, what's, what is the public using? Well, I'm going to sort of go through a tangent, but let me explain what fentanyl is. What we do have is fentanyl is an IV push. And we usually use fentanyl, and we usually in the ICU. The reason is we can do drips of fentanyl, but fentanyl gets out of your system really quick. Um, so it is an IV push similar to morphine and Dilaudid, but because it's so fast acting, we don't give it on the floor. The reason is, is that usually nurses are five to one, four to one. And if you had all the patients on fentanyl, they would spend their whole time going around giving people fentanyl pushes because it lasts less than an hour. It's real quick in action and you would constantly be requesting more pushes. So it's usually a medicine. You can give it push in the OR, or I'm saying when the nurse pushes the, you know, the medication, usually it isn't a drip form. And that means it's a pain medicine. So in the ICU, if you think about it, most of the patients in the ICU are on a ventilator. And if you've ever stuck anything in your mouth, it makes you gag. It makes you very uncomfortable. So we don't have anesthesia per se in the ICU. You don't have anesthesia that allows you to have a breathing tube without discomfort. What we have in the ICU are medications. So you have sedation medications. So that's, they span from, Presidex is a sedation medicine you can, that calms you, but you can have it with or without the breathing tube. But most of the sedation medicines that we have with drips are propofol, which is a medicine people remember that Michael Jackson overdosed from, but it was because he was being administered propofol without observation. Um, that usually if we ever use propofol without a breathing tube, you have to have a nurse anesthetist or an anesthesiologist there with you the whole time to watch your airway. They never step out. The other time is when you actually have a breathing tube and you're on a ventilator. But you might think, okay, well, if you had surgery in the ICU, you have sedation, but it would be very cruel if we don't give you pain medicine. So pain medicine to help cover both your pain from surgery or for whatever put you in the unit, you need medication. And usually that's in the form in the ICU of either a morphine drip, but usually the first line is a fentanyl drip. And the reason... You might say, why fentanyl? It's so potent. You really don't have it at that level. But the reason is you can turn the fentanyl drip off and patients wake up. And so if they wake up sooner, we can get the breathing tube out quicker, where morphine might take all day for a patient to get that out of their system.
Okay. The other way, that other form of fentanyl that we have is a patch. And it's like a, and it's usually a pain patch, either for chronic pain or cancer pain, that gives you a low dose fentanyl, sort of like those extended release tablets, but it absorbs through your skin. And you can get that, and it changes every three days. And there's certain patches people use, and they're not all um, for narcotics. You think of nicotine patches for people who are in the hospital that are smokers. So, because you don't want them lighting a cigarette and burning the hospital down because they have oxygen. Because that's, that's people have tried that, and that's happened. Um, other patches are clonidine, which is a high blood pressure medicine. Um... Clonidine has really bad rebound hypertension, so some patients are on a patch so they don't get that rebound effect. If they forget to take their pills or they're late with their blood pressure, they just wear a patch and change it ever so often. So the public doesn't realize we don't have fentanyl pills. So what's what's happened? So I went into training in 2008, so I've seen a big difference between 2008 to 2023. So, um, in this podcast, I, I learned back in the late 2010 to 2020, we wrote about 250 million prescriptions for pain pills for different reasons in this country. But right before COVID, there was this big push because of opioid addiction. And I'm not saying that anything's wrong. I'm just, I'm just explaining what's going on we've tried to swing the pendulum the other way. And now we cut down our pain pills to about half of that amount or those prescriptions. And there's been a really big push to keep pain doctors from writing opioids or limiting the amount of pills that we prescribe. And and it's even, um, I'll explain what's currently going on. Um, I remember... The second year in training, so this is 2009, about, and my co-resident, and before she uh, left neurosurgery, she wrote a prescription for a patient, and that patient went home and overdosed on the pills. And so we got a big grand rounds review of how to write medicine, what dose, how to evaluate patients. So... I came from learning that early on in training because of that experience to coming. So when I went left to Virginia and I was used to writing, writing Percocet, I came to San Angelo and I started writing Percocet for my post-op and none of the pharmacies carried it. And so I had to go and I was like, and I had to ask the other surgeon, what do you write? And they say hydrocodone. And what happened is between when I left for med school and residency and I came back, Texas um, made hydrocodone a triplicate and left Tylenol-3 and Tylenol-4 a non-triplicate. So now everybody sort of had this, well, hydrocodone, because it's a triplicate, it's hard to get. Everybody requested that. They didn't want the Tylenol-3 or Tylenol-4. They wanted the hydrocodone. Um, even though in Virginia, you couldn't, you couldn't push hydrocodone on anybody. That's, it's very regional. And I don't know why. 
but it is, even though it's one to one. Um, I had, I had a finger surgery, you know, when I had my, uh, biopsy for my melanoma and I think I got Percocet on that. I took like one tablet and I remember actually for my, for my lumpectomy, for, uh, for my, um, uh, breast surgery, I got hydrocodone and I took two or three tablets for that. And I had oral surgery and a root canal and I took the hydrocodone. And when I, in pregnancy, when I had Talia, when I delivered her, they gave me Percocet. So I've had both those medicines. I, on my wisdom teeth, I had Tylenol three and I had the worst reaction. It may, it gave me severe migraine. Like, and I, after I took one tablet, I refused to take it. And this was like when I was 18, 19. So I've never taken Tylenol three again. Um, and technically one reason why I don't, prescribe people Tylenol-3 unless they say it works for them is because one in six patients have an enzyme where it's like water, like, so where it's not effective. And unless you test them for that, you know, so I don't, I don't like to get behind on pain and do that on, especially my complicated or big spine surgery cases. And so hopefully I haven't lost everybody, but, um, so then, right before COVID hit, there was this big initiative that all the pharmacies, if you wrote more than one week supply of pain medicine, they were, they were only going to do seven days. And that was a big push from Walmart. And I think Walmart got sued. And so what's sort of frustrating for me as a surgeon, and I, I agree, there's too many you worry about pills on the street, but I'm having to renew everybody's pain medicine every single week. And I can't delegate that to my nurses. So usually I'm doing it, you know, electronically in the computer, um, 9, 10 PM at night, every night. And, and because instead of giving them two week supply or a four week supply, I'm having to renew it every week, which isn't fair to the patient. And I think some of the stores, and this is like some of the big stores like Walmart and even the, the pharmacies have an interest. So if a patient has to go and pick up their pain medicine every single week, they're gonna have to buy items. There's, there's, there's an interest for them. Number, and number two, I don't get paid because when we do surgery, it's in the global. So basically that surgery and all post-op follow-ups for three months is included in that global. Well, surgeons are being asked to send in prescriptions and spend more time sending in prescriptions, but there's no increase in pay, which I'm not doing this for pay. But I'm just saying it, I don't like having my patients have to wait for me to send in prescriptions at 9 p.m. at night. So every time I tell my patients they need to give my nurses a 24-hour heads up on the medications so there's not issues with them getting. And then another thing is that my patients usually can't drive after they have neck surgery, they're in collars, they're not, so they're having to get someone else to go pick up their medicine every single week. So at least at the hospital, and so this, that's, so this is my big thing, a lot of post-op patients can't drive and pick up their medicine. So it's either family members or friends going and this sounds bad, you can't always trust everybody with pain medication. 
So how many of those pills are getting back to my patient? At least when I gave them their prescription and then my own hospital um, has cut down that they will only give patients 10 days of pain medicines when they discharge. And I'm a big, big advocate. What I do is I send it to our outpatient pharmacy at my hospital. And the reason why I do that, because I actually send a pharmacist and the pharmacist actually comes and talks to the patient with their prescriptions, goes all over all the prescriptions that I gave them, how they're supposed to be taken and answer their questions. Because if I send that prescription to an outside pharmacy, my patient who just had surgery is not going to pick that up and they're not going to talk to the pharmacist. It's going to be like that telephone game. But with all the regulations, I can only give my patients a short supply of pain medicines. And so I just feel like it, it impairs. And also some of my patients are in rural Texas, so they have to travel 30 to 45 minutes every week to get medication refills. So what's happened is because of this big surge to reduce the amount of prescription medicines in the market, and I've had patients who their prescriptions have been stolen. Um, and I won't renew them unless I know they give me a police report. Like they, I had one patient who told me her daughter stole them and took all of them, but she didn't report her to the police. And I said, I cannot enable that behavior. So I could refill it if you're willing to report her to the police or say that this happened but I can't keep refilling your medicines if you're going to enable that activity. So, um, and that goes back to, you know, learning back, like I said, in residency, learning about the consequences of medications um, early on and how to handle situations that arise with narcotics. Um, so who is, who, who has taken that void? Well, it's the drug cartel. So, because there's a lot of prescription drugs no longer on the market, those were going for high dollar for a pill. So what they've started doing is making reprodu reproducing pills that look similar to hydrocodone, look similar to oxycodone. They have the same imprint. They're making them in mass quantities. So just think about chocolate chip cookies. Like, Let's say you have enough chocolate chip cookies and the chocolate chips, you have like 50, well, I was going to say 50 chips per cookie. That's a lot of, you know, you know, I must be a chocolateaholic, but um, let's say you have enough chocolate chips to go 15 per cookie. Well, making a big batch, some of those cookies are going to get more chips than others. And that's just what happens with these pills. And fentanyl is a very, very, um... And you might, okay, so heroin, okay, fentanyl is 50 times more powerful than heroin. And it's a 100 times more powerful than morphine. And it's because it's synthetic. And when, so the drug cartel from Mexico has seen it's like a business opportunity. The last 10 years, what's, what's um, when people were selling pills illegally, and I'm not saying that we need to prescribe more pills so they can do it, but this, this has created this market. 
And so um, they are disguised as oxycodone, hydrocodone, and they're selling them on the streets. And these kids who have either taken them or hydrocodone, this is the thing, the drug cartel, heroin addicts, are addicts. There's only so much that really kids don't experiment with heroin. It's somebody who has an underlying substance disorder who's pretty into drugs that gets into heroin. The other thing is heroin is limited by the opium or the poppy seed. Um, or not the pop, you know, like, sorry, I'm, I'm not very, I'm not an expert in drugs, but it's limited by growing. It's not synthetic. You have these drug cartels who are now able to make synthetic fentanyl, make them appear to be like regular drugs on the street that we now have a market for because we're no longer, it's almost like, you know, just for example, if the drug cartel started making cars, you know, because we haven't had cars in, at least in Texas around with, because of the chips, they don't have the chips. So our car lots pre COVID used to be full. And now you, you, we all know there was times where you would go by the car lot and there'd be like one car or, or, or you're having to order your car to get a new car. You can't just go and get one off the lot anymore. Well, it's like the drug cartel is now making all the cars and putting them on the lots. And they're making them appear to be like Toyotas or GMC or Chevy. That's exactly what they're doing. And so with this fentanyl that has never been in pill form, they're making it look like our hydrocodone, oxycodone. And then they're put, pushing it into the, the street and the kids really don't think much of it because they might have they might have had hydrocodone they might have broken their leg they might you know they might have had an injury where they've had some of that medicine before and it's they're doing drugs and they're taking it and they're taking one pill and what's happening is this is going to the to the neurological pathway the opioids it's a suppressant so it suppresses the respiratory drive and they actually have respiratory arrest induces cardiac arrest because it knocks them out. A lot of them, so I have seen, so then the other spectrum are the stimulants. And actually I saw bad batches of cocaine and I, where I saw multiple head bleeds with cocaine positive and people 40 and younger in Richmond. We actually, the Highway 95 went all the way to Florida and there was a Jamaican gang that brought a lot of cocaine in, in the Virginia area when I was training. The other thing I almost started, and I might've talked about this before, but there was synthetic marijuana and I didn't even, I thought synthetic marijuana was marijuana. It's actually like herbs, like parsley, probably not parsley, but it's like herbs that they spray with chemicals. And the thing is, is when you spray chemicals, you can't, you can't, like some, you, the amount, you might give too much amount. You can't delegate the amount very well. I had three teenagers with head bleeds after smoking synthetic marijuana um, within like two or three weeks in v Richmond, um, I think anywhere between 16 and 19 
And so I, I, I commonly would see bad batches of stimulants called head bleeds. And so, um, and actually, what am I, uh, I, I forgot this, but the first external ventricular drain that I actually placed on a patient was a young gentleman that had over, like, had taken drugs and fell down the stairs and actually was the son of a, not in our area, but of a, a, a female physician and later, uh, and basically fell down the stairs and suffered cardiac arrest from the side effects from the drugs. And he was younger than me. So I remember, I mean, I was 26, somewhere between 18 and 26. So, I mean, there's, there's a bad drug problem. But the problem is fentanyl is not a pill. And the drug cartel is making them into pills. And they're disguised, not as fentanyl. But as other, uh, as, as the, the narcotics that we're used to, the ones that I described. So you might, and I don't know if the public understands that because we keep hearing about these fentanyl overdoses and these are kids and the kids, number one, they're lower, they're lower weight, they're smaller they're narcotic, naive, and so it's going to suppress the respiratory drive. And like I said, chocolate chips, the way they produce those medications, there's no way they can guarantee how much of fentanyl is in one pill versus the other. There's no regulation like there is with the medications that we buy at our pharmacy. And I know this from my biochemistry degree because I had to synthesize wintergreen. I had to synthesize, and that's like what's what the active ingredient in, um, like Ben Gay, I had to synthesize aspirin, and based on, you know, how the percentage of purity that I was able to get was my grade, and so I had to do like really good. And everybody thinks like, and I was a biochemistry major, and it was really hard for me to get an A, and I knew the the mechanism and I understood the mechanism and what I needed to do. So these are people with, I doubt that they have a chemistry background. Like, honestly, I doubt, I bet 99.9% have no chemistry background who are making these, these drugs. So, uh, I think some of the things that we have done have opened it up and, the drug cartel uh, there's there's not a great way to fight them except to not buy the cars and that's basically sitting down with our uh, our kids and talking to them and letting them know that this is going on and even their friends might and the other thing is that when I grew up, you thought of selling down, like a, a drug dealer would be down the street dealing it. But with social media, it's not, there's not like a negative context of drug dealers. These are their friends giving them or selling them 
or giving them stuff that they bought. And who wouldn't trust their friends? And actually, one of my scribes um, in San Angelo's brother overdosed. So it, 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 it's really close to home. And it hits a lot of people um, closer to home. And it's hitting closer to home in our area as well as the areas probably throughout the U.S. So I feel like I rambled a lot, but I really don't have a solution. I don't have a solution. I think we just opened the market for the drug cartel. Um because they can make a lot of money because it takes them it I, I I heard on this podcast earlier and I can't quote it but it takes them about 13 cents a pill to make and they're selling them at least five to six dollars and that's actually low because that's what the guy said I remember uh, when people were selling pills uh, and I've had patients tell me that they bought pills off the street um, not fentanyl pills but back in the day so I understand what they're saying, but they, they weren't go, they're going like double digits, like 10 to $20 a pill. So I even think that this podcaster was underestimating from what I've heard from individuals. But um, they, there's a lot of money there. Um, and they're paying for it. And like I said, it's a, this pill is a, it's like a wolf in it. You know, it's like Little Red Riding Hood. The wolf in, is in disguise. Um, and they don't realize that it's not hydrocodone. It's not oxycodone. But it's a lethal dose of fentanyl. So. If I can, if I have any ideas of figuring out how to fix this, I'll let y'all know. But hopefully that gives you some education about narcotics how narcotics are regional, and I don't know how they are in the state, the area you're listening, um, but that just gives you some background from Texas and Virginia, and also how the drug cartel has seen an opening to make money and has gone with it and is making a profit at the expense of our children. Um, so thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed.